We're going to be examining uh, John chapter 5, a unique story at the healing of the pool of Bethesda. And um, this is an incredible story. This is an incredible truth that hopefully we're going to peel back some layers and explore uh, something behind the scenes that I never considered up until I started digging into this about seven years ago. And um, so with that, I'm going to start. Both Christians and Jews believe in a God that can restore an individual and sustain health no matter what the sickness or disease is. Amen? I mean, God is not limited. It's not like, oh, that's cancer, I can't do anything about it, sorry, but yeah, the flu, got it. Um, Life is a precious gift. Life is a precious gift. Man is created in the image of God to worship him and give him the glory and take pleasure in his creation. We're supposed to enjoy this amazing uh, world that was created. We were created to walk in such a way that we are a delight to God. Life is seen as the vehicle for delivering praise to God because He is a God of life and covenant, relationship. He is worthy of praise. But where a lack of health exists, there's a lot of complications. There is misery, there is pain, there is sorrow, there is discomfort, there is fear, depression, anger. This is experienced by both sides, the person afflicted but also those that love them, those that surround them. It's always really difficult uh, to have someone in your life that's really suffering. And I'm not talking about like when I get a man cold, as my wife talks about it, right, and I complain and whine. I'm talking about like real, real issues here. It is difficult. And we look in the scriptures and we see Job. I mean, his wife was, he was, his state was so bad, his wife was lovingly said, curse God and die. And Hezekiah got sick and he, he was on his deathbed and he cried out to God for healing. So we see real people, flesh and blood people that suffered. Yet even through suffering, it is possible to experience divine peace. That kind that surpasses all understanding. And during a times of suffering, we can find comfort in God's word. That is true. Easier said than done, but it is true. God can reach us in any state. Now, in the beginning, God created mankind to not just solely exist. He didn't just put us on some spinning ball. Uh, But we were created to live according to his or her true purposes, which was to be in a relationship with him. That is why we were created. God's creation was perfect. He spoke the world into being and he formed man from the earth. And he breathed life into him. Mankind did not experience bodily degeneration, which leads to sickness and ultimately to death. But sin, sin came into the world. And with sin came sickness and the need for healing. Now in the Hebrew, there is a word called rapha. This is a word equated with healing. It's used periodically throughout the Bible to describe divine healing. Healing brought about by a physician. Spiritual healing, healing of the tongue or the restoration of a nation. There's another word called geha, which can also be used to dictate natural bodily healing, uh, whether that's through medicine or one's outlook on life. But we're going to focus on this word, rafa, which is an easy Hebrew word to say. Say it with me. Rafa. That's an easy one. It's like very pleasant, right? I think when I preached here a couple months ago, some of the words I brought out, you had to... Kind of like that, and spit on people in front of you 
which they, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't like it. But Rafa, that's like soft, right? That's soft, like a little kitten. So Rafa is a, is a good word. But this is what we're going to be examining, Rafa, that God used Rafa. He used the healing power of Rafa through Jesus who encountered this paralyzed person at the Pool Bethesda. Pool Bethesda, that means the house of grace. What a lovely name for a place of suffering. That probably didn't smell very nice. People laying all around, sick, coughing, who knows, but the house of grace. Jesus enters this place called the house of grace. Now I'm going to read this for you, to you, and you can look at it on the screen. John chapter 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. An amazing story. It's, it's an incredible story. To, you can read through it and be touched, but you can read through it and miss a lot of things happening here. So first of all, the man is stranded at the pool. No one cares for him. He's neglected. He has never reached the water. And to make matters worse, because boy, would this ever tick me off, this, if I was in this case, he watches other people get healed. You know, like you're laying there, you can't even move. There's nobody to drag you over there, and you're watching everybody. Anybody go runs over and touches the water and gets healed. So obviously he feels completely hopeless, trapped. It would appear that love is completely absent from this place. Now this, though, is where it starts getting weird and suspicious. Okay, listen to this. An angel comes down and stirs the water into bubbles. Now, I've been in hot tubs and jacuzzi tubs and things like this, but this is odd. You know, you have a pool of water and an angel comes down and stirs the waters into bubbles. And then some people get healed if they reach the pool. It's kind of like a race. While it's obvious others don't have, uh, get healed or, or not. You know, like they, they have no chance. Does God heal in this way? You know, I remember reading this and I was like, does God, this is strange. Of course, God can do whatever he wants, but does God heal in this way? Do I see it in the scriptures? And it kind of looks like favoritism. You know, those who don't really need healing get healed and those who need healing don't get healed. Who is the angel? Who is the angel? Where else in the Bible does an angel of the Lord only heal on a first-come, first-served basis? What is this place? Is John describing a pagan place? Okay. Now, I grew up liking mystery novels and mystery shows and TV programs like Sherlock Holmes. That's the name of one. I loved Sherlock Holmes growing up. And so reading this, we got to un uncover, we got to go on a little bit of a mystery hunt here and look at the evidence 
So this is the Pool of Bethesda today. This is what you can see today. It's just ruins, okay? There's, there's nothing there apart from ruins. But archaeology has shed light on the location of the Pool of Bethesda and what it was used for. In the first century, the Pool of Bethesda was located near the Fortress Antonia by the Sheep Gate. The Fortress Antonia was a Roman headquarters, administrative headquarters for Jerusalem. It was a place of relaxation for Hellenists. That's weird, and we'll talk about what that is. It was a place of relaxation for Hellenists, and it was connected to the god Serapis, which later a temple to Serapis was built. And it was a place of pagan ritual immersions and pleasure. This is a scale model of what it would have looked like at the time of Jesus. So right away, it was a a place for the god Serapis, ritual immersions, pagan ritual immersions, Hellenism. What is Hellenism? Okay, Hellenism is everything Greek. Um, It can mean all kinds of different things from language to culture. But Hellenism at the time focused on polytheism, the belief in many gods. But at the center, the core of Hellenism was hedonism. And still is. Hedonism is all around us. Hedonism in that time was the worship of the body and the worship of pleasure. They literally worshiped these things. So then what happens? How many people here, if you've been throwing up all night and in a horrible state, look beautiful? Like, come on, outward beauty? No. You look, you look pretty miserable and you feel like death, right? So hedonism worships the body. Okay? The body beautiful. But if you're not beautiful by those standards, well, then you're pushed aside. We don't want to see you. You're an outcast. Obviously, the gods hate you, right? So we got to get rid of you, put you somewhere else that we don't see you. And then it also worships pleasure. It's just me. I'm the center of the universe. Everything that I can get for myself um, is worth it. So hedonism places man at the center and literally worships his physique. To be sick or physically unattractive could result in alienation. Hedonism judges the exterior, but what does God judge? He judges the heart. It's complete counter. It's the complete opposite. So this is why so many people that are sick languish in misery at the pool of Bethesda without anyone to care for them, yet they're all seeking the healing from Serapis. So this is quite an interesting place. Our culture really hasn't changed that much, really, when you think about it. But who is Serapis? Okay, so we're going to go on a little bit of a kind of a hunt here. Who is Serapis? That's the place where Jesus goes into. Who is Serapis? To discover this, we've got to go back to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus. Okay, just bear with me. In Numbers 21, 4 to 5, the Israelites are complaining and they're just fed up and they kind of like, you know, they really upset God. So what happens is fiery serpents appear and start biting them. And people start dying, and it's awful, but people make the connection. Wow, our rebellion against God has brought these serpents that are killing us. So they go to Moses, and they're like, they repent. We were wrong. Please have God take the serpents away from us. We're dying. Moses goes to God. God says, build a bronze serpent, erect it on a pole. And when the people look to it, they will know where their healing comes from, and they will be healed. So the people that look at the serpent are literally healed, miraculously healed, and they give praise to God. They know exactly where the healing comes from. A couple centuries later, in the time of King Hezekiah, we read, this is 700 years later, in 2 Kings 18.4, 
we read about a pagan deity, a false god named Nehushtan. And it says Hezekiah is cleansing his lands of idols because Hezekiah wants to get back to worshiping the true God. So he cleanses the lands of Judah of idols. And it says in this passage that he took the bronze serpent of healing that Moses put up in the wilderness and he destroyed it because people were worshiping it. And people were worshiping it and had called this God, Nehushtan. And Nehushtan was a God connected with healing and medicine. The snake on the pole, right? So that's what they're worshiping. Now, King Hezekiah is the king of Judah. There's a king of Israel, though. There's a northern kingdom because after Solomon, the kingdom split. Now, paganism has a kind of a, a typical habit. It spreads. You remember the story of Elijah and Ahab, the wicked king of Israel? He marries Jezebel, the wicked queen. And she comes down and she, she came down from modern-day Lebanon. She was from Lebanon. She brought her gods with her the Baals, and they really made some huge issues. And Elijah faces off against these prophets of Baal. But she brought these gods with her, Solomon. Remember, Solomon has many concubines and wives. Well, they all brought their gods. So paganism has, it's like, it, it has a form of changing and, and twisting. So if the people of Judah are worshiping this golden, or sorry, this uh, bronze serpent, could it have gone north? What about the northern kingdom of Israel with all their wicked kings and their idolatry? So let's look towards that. At around the same time of Nehushtan and Hezekiah, we find a god in the north being worshipped called Eshmun. Eshmun was, um, uh, was in the lands of the Phoenicians, what is today northern Israel and southern Lebanon, that area which was controlled by a people group called the Phoenicians, who were most likely descendants from the tribe of Asher, the Israelite tribe of Asher. And the, the, the Phoenicians were seafaring people. They were entrepreneurs. They went all over the world with their products. But this god, Eshmun, was discovered in 1901. There was an archaeological excavation going on, and this man named McCready Bay discovered a temple to Eshmun, and in the temple was an inscription that said, Eshmun Sar Kadesh. Eshmun, the ruler of Kadesh. Now, where did the snakes start biting the Israelites? The desert of Kadesh. Okay, so there's a connection. Eshmun is connected with serpents. You can see the snakes. And he's a god of healing and medicine, like Nehushtan. Now, the Phoenicians, like I said, are seafaring people. They go all over the world. So let's follow the trail. Could the serpent of healing ended up anywhere else? Well, it did. In, um, to the Greeks, the Phoenicians were uh, large, uh, they traded often with the Greeks. We have a god that come, pops up a little after Eshmun called Asclepius. Asclepius is a god of healing and medicine. And Asclepius is always pictured with a staff and a snake coiled around it. Okay? So get the plot thickens. So Asclepius, how do, so how does this connect us with Serapis? Asclepius ends up in Egypt. How? After Alexander the Great dies, his vast kingdom is broken up into small kingdoms. One of his generals named Ptolemy invents a god. That's pretty arrogant, right? That's pretty, I mean, if you're a pagan, inventing a god might be a pretty good move. But Ptolemy is the king of Egypt. 
The Egyptians had bizarre gods with animal heads and weird things like they worship cats and stuffed crocodiles and all kinds of weird things. Uh, Ptolemy's a good Greek. He's like, this is weird. So he creates a god. If you're going to create a god, I guess let's take all the best stuff, right? So he takes everything that's awesome, puts it all into one god, and creates Serapis, okay? And associated with Serapis are snakes because he also takes the, the healing attributes or characteristics of Asclepius and puts them into Serapis. So in this big, huge temple built to Serapis in Alexandria, Egypt, they had the snakes that would swim through the waters, and this is creepy, with piercings. They would put like earrings and jewelry on the snakes and release them. It, creepy, really creepy stuff, because I'm like Indiana Jones, I'm terrified of snakes. But the snakes were connected with Serapis. So Nehushtan, Eshmoon, ends up in Greece to Asclepius. It goes full circle down to Egypt. Serapis, who by the first century during when Jesus is on in a walking the world, ends up in Jerusalem. And there's a pool Bethesda worshiping Serapis as this healer. So this is bizarre. Now the pool Bethesda contained pipes in the floor that could release air to stir the waters and create bubbles. Okay? Each morning priests of Serapis would release sacred snakes into the water to swim around and prepare it as an offering for the day. Once again, very creepy. Hollow pipes around the pool would carry the sound of the priests' voices. They would speak through these pipes, beckoning people to come to the water for healing. And as if this wasn't enough, Asclepius, from whom Serapis received his healing characteristics, is often pictured in Greek mythology with what? Wings like a fairy, wings. Was this the, the, perhaps the angel John speaks of? Okay. An angel who plays favorites, does not heal everyone, and who only heals those who most likely do not need healing. Now, a basic precept of evil, it seeks to distort, it seeks to compromise truth, and it sometimes appears to be as, as if it's from God, kind of like, the angel of light, the roaring lion, or the wolf in sheep's clothing. It'll probably pop up there eventually, but you can look on the, this is my awesome picture of a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's exactly what a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like. Um, more than likely, there had to be some kind of counterfeit healing at the pool of Bethesda, or else pretty much people would give up, right? Nobody would have bothered with it. Kind of keep people in a state of false hope. So whether the healing was temporary or long-lasting, it was a place where hope was fleeting and everything was unpredictable. I mean, isn't that like what we experience when we walk away from God? We can convince ourselves that, oh boy, I got it made. But really, when you actually look at it, life is unpredictable. It, it seems chaotic. It seems confusing. It's fearful. People were at the mercy of Serapis. More importantly, people seeking Serapis as God were in bondage to him. They may experience some sort of healing, but at what cost? Just because they were healed doesn't mean it's from God. Remember in Egypt, Moses and Aaron stand before the Pharaoh. What happens? Aaron throws his staff down. The priests of Pharaoh throw theirs down. They turn into snakes. They turned into snakes. There is a counterfeit healing. Satan is the ultimate deceiver. 
the father of lies within whom nothing good exists. He is a destroyer and he has been from the beginning. In Hebrew, his name translates as the adversary. If he was like a supervillain, the adversary, that would be his name. He is a supervillain, a real one. So Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. Why did Jesus go to the pool of Bethesda? He didn't just, well, what is this place? And walk through, oh, there's a bunch of people laying around. Oh, there's a water. I guess I'll heal some people. He went to the pool of Bethesda to make war. It all boils down to who is the true healer? Where does true healing come from? It's like Pharaoh. Who is the true God? It's not the gods of Egypt. It's like a showdown. Who is the true healer? Is it Jesus? Or is it Serapis? I mean, Jesus has been healing people up in Galilee. Serapis heals people at the pool. Maybe they're both healers. Who's the true healer? There can only be one true healer. Jesus enters the lion's den and brings with him Rapha, the healing of God. And this also demonstrates where Jesus was willing to go, in a place where any sensible person would avoid. Jesus was willing to go to that place. He steps into the midst of sickness and he heals a desperate man. He destroys the stigma of Hellenism by going to the unwanted and the unattractive. The useless according to the world of that time. Jesus just destroys it. I go to those people. The world would never go to those people, but I will go to those people. He breaks Serapis' power and demonstrates to all that such a false god holds no real power and is counterfeit compared to the living God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Messiah. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't have to sit there meditating or doing anything or rubbing sticks together. He just looks at the man and says, get up. Stand up. The man stands up, instantly healed. 38 years, he's just been laying there. Instantly healed in front of everyone. That's like, it's a jaw dropper. It really is. I mean, I would have loved to see the look on the man's face after 38 years when Jesus asked him, sir, do you want to be healed? I'm like, uh... Let me think about that kind of thing, right? I doubt. But, but this man is healed. Who was the man? Who was this man? Because I think this is where it begins to take it from this incredible healing right home to us. Who was this man? Because this is very important. He was Jewish. That's really important. Because he's not supposed to be in a pagan place looking to false gods, right? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's his heritage. The pagans, they're just doing what pagans do. But he's Jewish. He shouldn't be there. Now, two things reveal the identity of this former paralyzed man. And this proves of his ethnicity, his background as a Jew. After he gets healed, he's carrying his bed. And certain Jews stop him and say, why are you carrying your bed? It's the Sabbath. They're very concerned because to them, they see a man who appears to be breaking the Sabbath. They would never be concerned about a Gentile doing that. A Gentile could do whatever they want for, for basically uh, to them, but here's a Jewish person should not break the Sabbath. So they're very concerned about that. The, the man that, who's been healed says what's been happened. He says, tells them what happened. He says, the guy told me to pick up my bed. I don't know who it is, though. And they kind of ask him some more questions. But then the second reason we know this man's Jewish is the bigger one. He ends up in the temple. In the temple, 
Not the outside of the temple, inside the temple. Only Jews could go inside the temple. And, this, and he meets Jesus there. And that's when he learns who Jesus is. That's when he learns who healed him. So he goes to the temple. Well, why? Perhaps he was there to be reinstated into the Jewish community after being deprived of temple worship for 38 years on account of his sickness. Maybe he was there to pray and repent for looking to a pagan deity for healing. Maybe he went to the temple to offer a sacrifice of praise to God for being healed. Most likely it's a combination of all of those things. And as well, being faithful to the Levitical commandment that said, when you are sick and you get healed, to present yourself to a priest. So he's probably also being an obedient Jew. But I think there's more beyond this. But no matter why, the man met Jesus in the temple. This is an incredible thing. Why was the man in the temple? And I want to ask this final lingering question. Why would a Jewish person seek healing from a false god? Why would he deliberately trust in something that he must have known to be false? You could ask the same question to all of us. If you know the Lord, doesn't mean you're going to have times where you stumble and fall. I mean, how many times, I can't imagine how many times I, being sealed in Christ by his spirit, knowing the God who spoke this world into existence, when sometimes when I encounter troubled times, I forget to pray to him. I, I sometimes forget to even read my Bible or go to him. It's like I start talking to other friends like, oh, what do you think? What do you think? Have you ever been there? And then a week goes by or days and then you're like, what on earth? Like, I didn't even, I forgot to pray. Why, why would I go to other things? And sometimes we even go to things or get on bandwagons we know are false, but we convince ourselves that it's right. But we know they're false. The flesh is weak. And we stumble and we struggle and we fall into that. Now, it's a mystery with this man. We don't know why he was at. We don't know what happened in his life apart from being paralyzed. We don't know what happened. But ultimately, this sheds light on the inner struggle between man and God and our fallen nature. Our struggle. These are real people. These aren't fables. These are real people that struggled. Perhaps the man's response when Jesus approached him gets us closer to the answer. The man felt abandoned, not just by men, but by God. He felt abandoned. I'm 34 years old. This man had four more years on me of laying at a poolside. I mean, it wasn't like a nice resort pool probably either. 38 years. For years he had felt worthless and deserted. There must have been despairing times where he cried out to God and felt nothing. More than likely, his initial response to Jesus concerning his feelings of neglect was but a mirrored image of his bitterness towards God, this transference. Yet a lingering desire, this is what I like, there had to be a lingering desire to trust God that existed in this man, which is evident by his actions upon healing. He didn't just say, I deserve that healing. I don't know what's wrong with you, God. It took you 38 years, but you... I finally got what was owed to me. I'm going home and eating lunch. No, he goes to the temple. He goes to the temple. Where does true healing come from? It's like his reaction is like the Israelites. They get bit by the, the snakes. They look. They, they repent and they look up to the bronze serpent. This man lays there for 38 years. Who knows why? But after 38 years, he gets healed like that. 
he goes up to the temple to worship and to be in the presence of God. Now, two quick stories before I close. We don't always know why we struggle. There's spiritual healing. There's physical healing. We see in the Bible people spiritually restored. We see people in the Bible physically restored. We don't always know why we, we grapple with things or why this person got healed and I don't. Or is it a matter of just, if I just believe, then I'll, or maybe I, I, I know God, so I shouldn't ever get sick. You know, maybe there's that. You've heard that. But it's, it's real. We see it with our eyes. We live in this broken world. But you know what? God heals and he restores. But the beyond both of those, he promises to never forsake us, to always be with us, even through the trials. He will be there with us. I had a friend who was dying of cancer years ago, and he was really wrestling. Lovely guy, loved the Lord passionately, wrestling with this cancer that the doctor had said, you are going to die. You have weeks, maybe days. And I spoke to him a week before he passed away. I did, obviously at the time did not know when he would die. I knew it would be soon. And his faith was pretty shaken up because people had prayed over him and said, Christopher, you will be healed. Like in your body, you will be healed. But now he's laying there in, in bed and dying. He hasn't been healed. And he felt like God had left him or abandoned him or like maybe it was something I did. And I was talking to Christopher and I, praying with him, and I said, Christopher, do you believe God can heal you, even right now? He said, well, absolutely. And then I said to him, I said, Christopher, did you know you're guaranteed healing? And he goes, Peter, don't, don't like, give me false hope, because, like, I'm laying here dying. Don't give me false hope, and I've been praying this, and God isn't healing me. I said, Christopher, do you believe that God right now could heal you, and snatch you up from death, and add 10, 15, 20 years to your life. I said, Hezekiah probably was in your exact same state, and that happened. We see other cases. She said, yes, I do believe that. I said, or, you know, it's all according to his glory, or he will take you home, you open your eyes, and look straight into his face, the face of our Lord, and you will be 100% healed, cleansed, no cancer, and by the way, you're in a place with no expiration date. You're never going to get sick again. You're like, you're in the presence of God. I said, you are guaranteed healing 100%. It might not be how you think, but you are guaranteed healing 100%. And God used that to reconcile his family around him, and in, including his son, who'd been estranged from him for almost 30 years, who came to the Lord through that. Like an amazing thing. And Christopher went home. And he's not standing before the Lord. He's dancing before the Lord. And then here's another story. I have a friend who just recently, a couple months ago, was healed. She had stage four breast cancer, prayed. that All the doctors are like, this is what we got to do. And she prayed and felt the Lord saying, no chemo. I'm going to work a miracle here. She rallied people around her, said, pray for me. Because I, I, I need to get this correct. Because I have a husband, I have children. I do not want to be foolish or unwise or think I hear something that I don't because my life is in jeopardy. And everybody, we all prayed for her. And we're like, you know what? If this is from the Lord, if you are he hearing clearly walk in his ways. And so she didn't have chemo. She didn't do any of that stuff. She started eating healthier and she's getting the, you know, tests done. And, but just believes that God's going to do something. Comes back 
to the doctors, they take all their tests, no cancer, no tumor, gone. And in that, through that incredible healing, which he gave all to the Lord, it was all recognized immediately. Where does true healing come from? It came from the Lord. Her parents, who are Iranian Muslims, gave their heart to the Lord. So like, it's just God works in mysterious ways, but he heals. And he heals us spiritually as well. Spiritual restoration, maybe it's fear, maybe it's lust or pride, abuse, whatever. God heals. Rafa, he breathes in you and heals and takes those iniquities upon himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we just praise your name. We thank you, Lord, that you are merciful. That your power is beyond our wildest imaginations. We thank you, God. You sent your son to this world who encountered darkness and shone light onto that darkness. Who walked into the pool of Bethesda boldly with no fear and confronted that dark power of Serapis and destroyed his power. That Jesus, you destroyed the power of sin. You broke those chains. You went to the cross. You suffered. You went into a tomb. And then you rose from the dead and you sit at the right hand of the Father not to just say, well, I'll leave the world and just let them do whatever they want. No. To accomplish your will. To reach out that none should perish. To offer salvation. To extend that healing. That we would go from children of darkness to children of light. Children of God. By your grace, we deserve death, but you brought life. We deserve everything that is bad in this world because of our rebellion, because of the curse of sin. But you're a loving God. And you reach out to us. You save. And not only do you save in the physical, but when we breathe our last and open up our eyes, we will be standing in, before your glory. Forever, completely restored, completely sanctified, forever. Never to be pulled away from your presence again. Never to suffer again. Yet in this time that we are in this world, let us stand together as a body, the church. Let us share who you are to the people around us. Let us open up our hearts. Let us respond that there is only one truth. There's only one thing we can actually lean on. And that is you. Because you're everlasting. Because you're real. You're true. You are the God of history. The God of today. The God of the future. You're anointed. And that you rescue us and you seal us by your spirit. You say, this one is mine. And nothing... Nothing can separate us from that, Lord. That is your love. We thank you that you breathed restoration upon that ungodly place that day. We thank you, Lord, that you breathe restoration upon us in our broken state. That you hold us in your hand forever. And Lord, 
we just bask in your presence. And we thank you. It's all we can do is worship you and thank you. We just praise your name. Almighty God, Jesus our Messiah. Amen.